listening to the Rothko Chapel podcast. Good afternoon. Welcome to the inaugural Rothko Chapel <laughs> podcast. My name is Michelle Ashton. I'm the public program director at the chapel, and I'm sitting here with Sissy Ferenthold, who is a longtime board member and honorary director, as well as a Texas politician and human rights activist. Her life is really a model of service for the greater good. And we're talking about a trip we just came back from to watch um, the beatification of Archbishop Oscar Romero, May 30th, down in San Salvador. And I just want to ask Sissy first, why was going to the beatification, why was that important to you? Well, I've been involved um, with the Salvadorian situation since I first went down there. I was reading about it before. But I first went in 1982. Okay. Uh, I never had the opportunity to meet Archbishop Romero, though he was certainly a very meaningful public figure for the poor and the, the oppressed and <laughs> oppressed people of Salvador before he was assassinated and certainly afterwards. So having this background and caring so much about the people from Salvador I met here and the struggles that they had both in the country and trying to get sanctuary here where they were refused sanctuary because our government claimed that they were economic refugees rather than ones that would suffer human rights violations. Oh wow. This is in the 80s. This was in the 80s. If you came from Nicaragua you got it it, it's a matter of what countries we officially we approved of. Okay. Are, are rather opponents of those countries. For example, you, you're welcomed with in those days, and still, I guess, right now, with open arms if you came from, from Cuba. You were if you came from Nicaragua, especially mm. after the Sandinistas came in. Mm. But if you were coming from either Honduras, where we had... We conducted the Contra War, actually, mm-hmm. from, from Honduras. If you were coming from there, and especially if you were coming from Salvador, because we were supporting the repressive government yes. in Salvador. So, um, and I can remember when they changed the na- name of the opposition from dissenters uh, to subversives. Oh, that's I important. I think it's something to always watch when mm-hmm. that when that comes. The language. The language, Mm. because um, it's very strong and it can mean a lot. So us not giving political asylum was because then we would have to admit that we were supporting a a violent regime. Well, yeah, we we weren't going to cross that regime Mm. until, I think it was, oh, maybe the, the, the death squads became so active that finally Reagan sent uh, the first George Bush mm. who was vice president down to say they just had to slow down on it. Wow. So um, so you started going in 82 when this was all still yes, very... Yes, Archbishop Romero had already been assassinated. In 80, correct. Yeah. And I can remember reading with horror. It was either just before he died, he held a, something at the at the cathedral, and it's certainly the mass for him after his death. Mm. 
there was so much blood on the plaza. I couldn't mm. help but think of that when we were down. That yeah. they had to use the fire hydrants really to wash it off. So you were aware of Romero before, before you went to El Salvador. Before I went down, because he had written President Carter, really saying, "Please do not send any more arms down here." And wow. this is a lesson we haven't learned, and we're living it. I can go in another direction yeah. for 30 seconds. It's what we're living in the Middle East. ISIS, yeah, absolutely. It's, and we've sent them over. It, it's actually, a man wrote a book called The, the Arms Bazaar. Oh. Because this increase of arms to the Middle East was came about particularly after the Shah left. Okay. Yeah. And they needed, you know, some place to sell all these things, and there were many of those governments over there had money. Well, anyway, back to the thing. I knew <laughs> about I knew about Romero because of his and, letter to Carter. Yeah. Okay. And and so on. And then what was happening was I had a law office here, mm. and we would have demonstrations, and so it was a education for me because I was as limited in my knowledge mm. of Central America as anyone could be. Mm. I barely, I didn't, I wasn't too sure of all the capitals even. It just mm. hadn't been on the radar. So I started reading and and it was, some of it was confusing so I had to read more. And then I met them as we began having demonstrations in support of the refugees and hearing their stories. Um, I just got more and more involved in it. Mm. So the beatification was like the culmination yeah, of thirty was, years yes. of work for you. Yeah, and yes, or maybe just a chapter mm. that was delayed mm. because I can remember, you know, he stopped uh, the the rest, renovation of the cathedral. He said, "We don't have money for this when people are suffering and so forth." Mm. But I went to his tomb, which was up on the, the where we were sitting. It got moved below. And then okay. it got moved with okay. all that grandiosity, which mm. was certainly not artificial Romero. And you would see all these little messages that he had been responsible for, mm. for uh, some miracles that happened mm. in families and so on. It's such a pity that all of that's been wiped off and a lot of bronze has been put up. Yeah. So um, this is a very significant, it was a significant chapter in the story of Archbishop Romero mm. because not the present Pope, he expedited things, but the two earlier ones had put the process for beatification somewhere in the back room of the Vatican as far as Archbishop Romero. Why was. is that, do you think? He was considered um, I get too radical. Is Was it his association with liberation theology? In part. And actually, the interesting thing about Archbishop Romero was when he was named Archbishop, it was with the approval of the oligarch. He was pretty conservative he when was he was conservative. named. Yeah, he had been in Rome, right? And and he was not a follower of Vatican II in any way. He left that alone. And then he had a very close friend, a Jesuit, Father Grandi, mm. who was shot uh, and... They, they now have a monument that's outside of mm -hmm. St. Salvador, a modest one. He and one of the, the peasants that he worked for were killed mm. late one afternoon, I think. I've been there. But the, the murder of his friend, 
made him look again. Really? Hmm. Yeah. And so it just grew and grew. Could you talk about the significance of Romero to the Rothko Chapel? Was it because I imagine you were working with Mrs. Domino when the award was named after him? The award was named after him, and it was there were numerous awards that were given during the period, the 10, 15 years before she died. And but this was the one she wanted to be sure that we kept mm. and and utilized, and actually. I didn't go with them, but she took the award down right after um, this big offensive about the FMLN. Oh, really? Yes, right after the big offensive, they can't. They went down to present the award to the Lutheran bishop. I've heard about it. Yeah. Um, Photo Fest, um, Wendy Watrous uh -huh. was telling me about this. I guess she accomp uh, accompanied Mrs. Domino on that trip. Yeah. And the, so she was right in the midst of things. When there was still violence yes, going on. Yeah. Wow. And um, did she know about Archbishop Romero or did she learn about him through you and your travels? No, I'm sure she, she and Mrs. Druby, who was mm -hmm. the executive director, they kept kept all these things. See, the chapel was 10 years old before the human rights component came into it. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was primarily for to be open to all religious traditions and those that had none. And, you know, it's, it's had a wonderful purpose in that people have been able to use it before they built their own place of worship. Mm. And that's that's happened more than several times. But Don Helder, who mm. was a liberation theologian mm -hmm. uh, from Brazil, mm -hmm. came and made the suggestion when the chapel was about 10 years old that there should be a human rights component. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it was another liberation theologist from Latin America who got the conversation going. That's right. Interesting. And liberation theology came out of, you know, Medellin, they had the meeting there, the preferential care of the yeah. poor and so on. And it looks as if it's being reconsidered, thank heavens, mm. with the new with the new pope. So the years went on and things were terrible at times and I was contrasting it. You don't see what from what were identified to me as the death squads. Mm were suburbans, mm. big suburbans with dark windows. Mm. That's what was pointed out to me is where the, how the death squads. And you would see them when you were on. Yeah. How many trips did you do down? Was it every think, other year? or? I think in the decade, say from 82, and I was there in 92 when the peace accords were signed, and of course that was totally celebratory. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people in the street all night and that and that kind of excitement. That was in ninety two. Okay. So between eighty two and ninety two, I think I counted it somewhere between 20, ten or twelve trips. Oh goodness! So like every every year, I went a lot, and but that also included trip, two trips to Guatemala. And were you acting as a human rights monitor, or what was your oh, role? Was, well, one the one interesting thing was I was with working with my cousin. And she was anxious um, to help the mothers of the disappeared. Okay. 
Now, the mothers of the disappeared from Argentina, but it started during yes. the Dirty Wars, mm -hmm. it was called. They were honored here. Yes. And somebody from Algeria who was um, doing a, a mother's Mother, uh, disappeared. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She was honored three awards Not ago. Or two, ago. two awards ago, yeah. So I went down to try to help the mothers of the disappeared and find a place for them to have an office. Mm. Now, the first trip I took there in 82, Archbishop Romero's influence was still there, which meant that the refugees were literally on the grounds of the archdiocese. Oh, wow. It was a refuge for them, intense. Mm. For people who had to leave their homes yeah, in the villages right. because of violence. Mm. And, and they, it was a sanctuary, too. Mm. And um, so that soon after that, the archbishop that replaced him closed it down. Oh, really? And another thing that's happened, and I... The archives recounting all of these terrible transgressions of human rights and mm -hmm. all of it, they were housed at the Archdiocese. Oh. And the director of it, Maria Julio Hernandez, I think, was honored here. I saw her um, resting place in where Romero's buried. That's right. Jose and pointed it out to me. She was the director, and we were... And of the Mothers of the Disappeared? Mm -hmm. She was the director of the... No, she was the director of the Archdiocese the archives. archives. Okay. And when she was one of the first persons I went to see when I went down in 82. Okay. And I will never forget what she said to me. You know, I was there, all the ears and eyes, and, you know, trying to find out what was going on. I said something about something being investigated, and she said, no... What needs to be investigated is the U.S. Embassy. Oh, wow. What, why, why was she saying that? Well, because of our relationship with the with government, government. And, and advisors. Mm. There is a very interesting thing. Advisors cover a lot. Mm. And we were told that there was a limit of 50 advisors. Mm. Well, there's another story that you have to piece together. For one thing... When I went to the province of San Vicente, out in the country someplace, there was a young, red-haired American, <laughs> North American, really, captain, who was in charge of everything. Wow. And only in one newspaper, let's say five or ten years ago, in the U.S. News Today, mm -hmm. came out with this account that there had been something like 6,000 U.S. soldiers that had been there. During the war. During the war. Wow. And they were very insistent that their service be recognized because it had not been. Because there's only supposed to be 50 advisors. <laughs> That's right. Wow. And so in this one paper, I didn't tear it out, was this account that after all these years, you know, pursuing this thing with the Pentagon... They finally had a ribbon to indicate that they had, had served, served in El Salvador. Wow. So there was this, we were constantly up against this, and, you know, we would decide to put we, meaning the U.S. government, mm -hmm. these different people in as, as president. Mm. There was a fellow named Duarte, and he was, um, oh, what do you call the Catholic Party? I've forgotten right now, but... Anyway, he'd gone to Notre Dame, mm. 
and it, you know, he, he it pleased some senators. I remember mm. having a little confab with Senator Tom from Iowa. That was oh, Harkin. Tom. Was it Tom Harkin? H. Yeah, I think it's Harkin. Harkin. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, he thought it was enough. He'd gone to Notre Dame. <laughs> really? Well, you know, yeah. we knew him. We like him. Yeah. Yeah, but that was just fun in a yeah. way. Just fun. So So um, when you were traveling between 82 and 92, you obviously weren't representing the U.S. government. No, no, for sure not. So you and, were going under your own... Yeah, or, or okay. with was some non-prop, some NGO... But working with the mothers of the disappeared yeah, as well, okay. and then and because what came of that was they had a tour of Europe oh. that my cousin supported. Okay, was this the same cousin with the peace tent? Yeah. Okay, and that was very into just a little humor, you know. If you mm-hmm. people hear you from Texas, they only think of oil wells. Sure. <laughs> so the story got around that. I was looking for a modest office mm. because at that time they had no office. Mm. As one of them said to me, our office is under a mango tree <laughs> because they were on the premises sure. of the archdiocese. Yeah. So then when the story got around, the idea was we'll sell her a building. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're thinking you're coming no, down no, with no, oil. No, that's <laughs> not where we are. And we found the, found the modest building for them and it was constantly being vandalized. Really? Yeah. And is and then you took them to Europe to do like a publicity kind of. They and we had um, another member that worked with a friend that worked with us, Ellen Dietrich. She and her partner okay. took them all over Europe. They started in England, mm. and they were on Vatican radio. Really? And I met them in Athens mm. because at that time. Margarita Papandreou's husband was the prime minister. Okay. And she had been very active in women's issues mm. and headed and organized a women's center there and so forth. So um, we were there right in the midst of an election. And they were very, people were sympathetic to them because they lived under the dictatorship sure. of the colonels, you know, and yeah. so they were very responsive. So we went to the head of the Orthodox Church there to see if they would select someone to be a, a escort them back. Because you were concerned about their safety when happen. they went back to El Salvador. And this person served us tea and sweets and said he was scared to go. <laughs> so did your presence give them some safety, you traveling no, with them? what happened was the head of the union mm. volunteered to go. Okay. Which yeah. union? In in Greece or? It would go from Greece to, okay. to San Salvador. And so did those, those women stay safe they, then they because of that? Okay, yeah. Wow. But you need, just as I was with Jennifer Harberry in Guatemala. Mm. So, anyway. So... Do you, so you've been obviously in El Salvador for from eighty two now to the last trip in May of twenty fifteen. What do you think about the current conditions in El Salvador? I and I'm just sorry I didn't have the opportunity to talk to more people about mm. it. But what I just observed with my eyes, I saw it at the election time, which I went down to in last year, mm-hmm. the presidential election. 
was there was a sea change, mm-hmm. at least as an observer. Okay. A when that was change, two years ago? Huh? Two, that, that election was two years ago? Or or? A year ago. A year? Okay. Very recent. Okay. Um, a, a sea change in the tr- attitude of the police. Really? Oh, yeah. The police were a scary bunch when I was there, and there mm. were so many different factions. There was, you know, the, the attorney general, the treasury had one, you know. Really? Was, Separate yeah, police forces? Wow. Yeah, different police forces. It was oh, that's the incredible. National Guard, National Guard was a horrendous one. So just a bunch of militias running yeah, around. Yeah, that's wow. right. So you didn't have that. Hmm. But as I look and sit and talk to people, there hasn't been much change mm-hmm. and it's a sad thing to see you see the same dichotomy I mean we didn't mm. see the oligarchy they weren't very we didn't see them they, no, were, they right. were maybe at their summer places who knows <laughs> but you know I was struck by the time in two instances where we were eating there was someone there that not in a begging kind of way but just as part of life was taking food if you weren't using it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know. I did. That. Yeah. That speak. That says a lot. There's still pervasive poverty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I don't know. I just took notice of that. And then when we were, you know, at the actual beatification, and those poor people we saw that were just crushed mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. There's still that appalling contrast, mm-hmm. and you can go there as we did, stay in that hotel, and be oblivious to it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. There was like a mall across the street with a bunch of American restaurants in it. That's right. Yeah. And when I was there, not this time, but the time of, not the election time, but oh, I know it was when the fresco was put up. Oh, in the which airport. Was the first recognition, mm-hmm. official recognition. Sure. Of, oh, Archbishop Romero. That's when I, I saw it. We went out to the countryside. We saw all the you know the mall and all the signs and USA every place mm-hmm. and the products from here. She went into the countryside. We went to a place where the refugees from Salvador had gone to Honduras. The government didn't want them to come back. And they mm. said, sorry, we're not staying here. We're going back to our home. Mm. We went to this settlement. It was so poor. Mm. It, And it hadn't changed. Yeah. Yeah. It hadn't changed. And so, there, you know, all you have to do is get away from the malls sure. and go to the countryside, and you see the situation is very difficult. Well, one thing that sounds like it has changed that what didn't exist probably when you were there back in the 90s is the, the gangs, which is what's gangs. making... And this two things, and I got this, and it's not my usual favorite place to stop, the U.S. Embassy, mm. but I can pick up some information. Mm. And we were told at the U.S. Embassy that Salvador had never been a transportation park mm-hmm. or, or whatever. A route. Yeah. A route mm-hmm. for drugs to this country, mm. to the U.S. It is now. Hmm. 
Interesting. Because of the arrival of the gangs, or no? Well, there. What's happening? You know, the gangs are used in part. Sure. By the drugs. Okay. So you have two new things: the gangs and the drugs. Yeah. And the combination. I haven't been there long enough to really get a reading on that. But I'll tell you when it came and just hit me right between the eyebrows was when we landed in that plane and the woman called her family and the family said, do not come tonight. This neighborhood is controlled by gangs and it's not safe for mm. you to come at night. Since, so you're talking about um, Soyapango where we visited That's the San Antonio right. Parish and I've heard that story that, that was the first time I'd heard that story, but now since I've heard it from two other people who have family in Soyapango, oh, and they really? say they, Kelly, who was with us, yeah. had trouble visiting her grandmother, um, who oh, lives yes. there, uh-huh. and then um, Elmo Romero, who I was mentioning to you, his mother lives in Soyapango, and it's difficult for him to visit because of, because of the gang violence, Yeah, and it hadn't been a, a problem before. So here we are. And when, you, when I think of the millions and millions when it went down there and what could have been done with it. Mm-hmm. Did the U.S. send money? Huh? The U.S. sent money? Oh, my God. Yeah. For arms. It was, at one point, it was a million dollars a day. Is what it but not did. for any kind of community no, building? No, or No, the one thing that they, and I can remember this, at one point, the State Department was encouraging people to go there and set up those maquiadoras. <laughs> well, that's worked that? out really well for Mexico. Well, we drove by one on the way from the airport, and our driver said that um, it sounded to me like when you did the math, the people there were making products for the states and were earning... Was probably um, a living wage in El Salvador, but by our standards would be just completely appalling. I think it was something like eighteen dollars a week or something yeah. was the was the wage they were earning. So, so when the the gangs that are new, it sounds like is your understanding that our fingerprint is on them as well? Is that you know only in the sense that? And I have not. I need to. I've just read about them because. They got the idea, was many of them did, when they were in L.A. So these are gangs that had been in L.A.? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then they were deported. So they're probably children of refugees from yeah. the Civil War then. Yeah, probably. And mm. I don't know chapter and verse. Mm. And it bears looking into. Mm. Because I have for years heard that the, they came in from their experience in... in um, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. but some person told us when we were down there, Michelle, yeah. that they didn't speak Spanish at the time they came back. I think Jose I mean, was talking about that, that um, a lot of the gangs, I, I always get them confused, I think it's M18 and M, another M, that a lot of them were, you know, refugees um, whose parents were coming over from the Civil War, and often those parents were working two jobs each just to get by, and... Um, often undocumented because they weren't getting political asylum cases. And uh, so these kids grew up in a street culture that was very foreign to them and formed their own gangs to survive, oftentimes then ended up in jail where these gangs were even more prevalent. And then as a U.S. overcrowd- prison overcrowding, 
sent to a country that they had never really lived mm-hmm. in and weren't speaking Spanish, didn't know anybody in the community, and so they just reformed their gang networks. Then again, in El Salvador, was was the story um, Jose Ortega, who was with Cher, who brought yeah. Sissy and myself and Claudia uh, Horowitz, our interim director. He he was the one who arranged our trip for us and got us into the beatification. That was the story that that I heard from him. And then there's this whole thing of the role of, of, of the drugs, which we're not up to date on. Yeah. On a more general thing, and I don't know if Salvador, I don't think Salvador's in it, but there are Latin American countries that are going their own way. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ecuador, I think, has legalized some things. Yeah, and Peru, there's part Columbia of Peru. Columbia is refusing to spray, mm-hmm. which was causing cancer. Mm-hmm. And so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I haven't heard anything on this issue about Salvador. And you know, when I think of it, Salvador, five million people. It's like Houston. It's Houston <laughs> in the in the metropolitan uh-huh. area. For whole, yeah, that was what really struck me when we were there was that um, not only because it was such a small country population wise that people really had and not just every other person but almost every person had a personal experience of the civil war Mm -hmm. and also a personal experience of romero because of the importance that he played the radio the radio shows his his thing made an enormous difference so i know you so the another country that often gets mentioned in terms of recent gang violence and being very dangerous is Honduras. Um, we're having our 2015 Oscar Romero Award this fall. Uh, November 12th is the award ceremony. We're honoring two Honduran women who are fighting for indigenous human rights. They're um, often against narco-traffickers and a corrupt state and and oligarchy oligarchy a lot of times it's american multinational companies with um palm oil production uh so the two awardees are miriam miranda and berta ciceris and i know you went to honduras within the past few years Mm -hmm. did you see similarities between el salvador and honduras well the thing that i didn't realize until that trip was all these, I went to Honduras once, but it was with focus on the Contra War. Okay. And that Negroponte, who was our ambassador there, mm-hmm. was running this thing out of the U.S. Embassy. U.S. Embassy was the second largest in the world. You know, wherever we're having a war, we're going to have a big embassy, yeah. i.e. Iraq. Yeah. And, but then it was, it was, uh, was Honduras. Honduras. And... But my focus was on Salvador. So this trip, this last trip I made to Honduras, I was sitting at this in this building that was dedicated to the families of the disappeared. Mm. And I was facing a wall of pictures of mm. primarily young men, but some young women that had disappeared mm. in the 80s. Mm. So that disappearance was going on it just wasn't focused on Mm. and I have a friend here Marta Benavides that's Mm. a union organizer Mm -hmm. from Honduras and she told me that there would be times when friends of hers just wouldn't show up Mm. at the university this was frequently you know they were picking the university students 
well, that's the ones that disappeared, and you never heard of them again. Was it the same political situation as in El Salvador, or was it the oligarchy versus oh, it's the, the... It's been that way traditionally. In Honduras as well? Oh, yes. The only place that may be slightly different is um, Costa Rica. Sure. You know, Costa Rica does not have a military. They don't, no. And it chose not to. Mm-hmm. And it's had some difficult times, but nothing like these these others. And, of course, you really had... It's hard not to call it genocide in Guatemala mm-hmm. with, the, with the, Absolutely. the indigenous people there. Mm-hmm. So you have... And, and then, of course, uh, Samosa was put in by the U.S. and kept there. Yeah. So, so I know, I mean, Honduras recently had a coup, and it seems like we are the U.S.'s hand. Oh, I know you have a strong opinion I about that. I have a very strong opinion, you know. It used to be that when I read in the paper that Vernon Walters, who was in the CIA and a diplomat, and I put quotation marks around there, and was an extraordinary linguist, when I'd see he was in a place, I knew a coup was coming up. Mm. <laughs> uh oh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And um, uh, I, though the president Suarez, who was um, sent off in his pajamas to Costa yeah. Rica, yeah. he came from the oligarchy. But mm-hmm. once in office, he seemed to start listening to others. Mm-hmm. He even had the idea of that big base there where that we used during the Contra War, Mm -hmm. which we now have reoccupied. Oh, really? They call it a lease. Mm. Mm -hmm. We stopped there but couldn't get in. Mm. Um, He was going to make an airport of it because the airport in Tegucigalpa is very dangerous. It's in a... You have to drop way down to land. Oh, okay. And it would have been... But he didn't wasn't in long enough to do that so Mm. it still will be a huge military installation with the U.S. and part of it. He's back in the country correct? Is he back in in politics? His wife ran for president but it didn't work out. Were you in Honduras monitoring the voting or? No I went to Honduras with uh, Sisters of Mercy, Catholic Order of Nuns and uh, but we spoke to had lectures and things by people that were involved with the social movements there. Yeah. Yeah, we went to the embassy. The story I take out, which I think tells a lot, and I was told by the man that that um, uh, was involved with the Peace Commission, Truth Commission, mm. not that the government did, but that two nonprofits, including one from the Scandinavian countries and okay. someone down there, The, the president that was deposed testified, and I've been waiting to get the English translation. They were doing like a truth and reconciliation type mm-hmm. of model? Interesting. They were doing two. One was official. Okay. The person that I was being given, who was giving the information, said, don't even consider that. It's, you know. It's this was happening when you were there. Yeah. Mm. But the other one is done by some third parties, sure. and I think a Scandinavian country was involved. He was the director of it, and um, promised me the translation, but I haven't seen it. But this was what was so interesting. The deposed president testified. 
and he testified that the U.S. ambassador handed him an envelope and said, there's no need to look at it now, but after this meeting, we'd appreciate your reading it. So he read it, <laughs> and what it was, was it was a list of people that the U.S. government wanted him to put in his cabinet. Oh, wow. We were very involved. <laughs> That's incredible. An ambassador telling the president of a sovereign nation who should be in his own cabinet? That's right. It's incredible. And God knows what goes on we don't know. Absolutely. And I'm still going to pursue that because I really would love to read that uh, Truth Commission, the nonprofit. Scandinavian yeah. one, but see, it's never even been commented on. Well, this is, it kind of reminds me, Sissy, of an experience we had when we were in El Salvador during, um, so the beatification was Saturday, and then Sunday we went to the Mass at the cathedral, and there were all these um, representatives of the different uh, archbishops from all around the mm -hmm. world, and, you know, there was, I think, somebody from Panama, and, you know, Germany, and they're all sitting up in this beautiful cathedral that I think Jose told me a story um, that you mentioned about Archbishop Romero that part of the reason also he refused to rebuild the cathedral is he said that the the destruction of the cathedral mirrored the destruction mm -hmm. in society and he wanted the reminder, which I think is just beautiful. But now it's this beautiful cathedral <laughs> and there are all these you know important men sitting up yeah. there and it had this very formal mass and... Um, and then we walked outside, and in the basement where Romero is buried, they were having the people's mass, mm -hmm. and you heard women's voices, mm -hmm. and there was a lot of diversity in the people who were there, and um, it reminded, just kind of that dichotomy reminded me a little bit of what you were talking about with the, the two different commissions. The two, yeah. There's the sponsored one, and then the unofficial and one. Unofficial. <laughs> That's right, and... and Romero very much belongs to the people there. Yeah, that's very clear. It's very clear, and it's an extraordinary thing to see, mm. to, to witness, to be aware of. And that's what that tomb brought. See, mm. that's lost now, mm. but it showed that relationship. At his home, I thought I saw a little bit of that, yeah. where the people had written um, on plaques, like the, the miracles you were talking yeah. about, yeah, which I was really that. moving. But that, I'm so glad we went there because it totally changed my image of the killing. Sure. And, you know, one of the persons said that when it was announced in the newspaper that he was going to be there that morning. It was a signal. That's what it was a signal. Yeah, so we're talking about Romero was, um, Archbishop Romero was assassinated he was martyred while he was he lived in uh, basically a hospital grounds it was a hospice for people hospital. dying with cancer and his uh, there was a small church on on the grounds um, there was also a small home where he lived and um, a family asked him to give mass. mass for a deceased family member who died of cancer correct and the paper ran that he was going to be giving this mass at a certain time at the small chapel which was apparently a signal to the assassins, which is really telling that somebody in the newspaper colluded and the family members colluded. And then my understanding is the assassins have never been brought to justice. Oh, no. And now the interesting thing, and I wish I'd, I'd cut out and keep a lot of things, but I don't think I kept this one. There was an account of 
the assassin, mm. and he is living undercover in some Latin American country. Mm. But that's not what they call the intellectual. Sure. So that yeah. he never mentioned that. Everything indicated that this de Aubusson, mm. who was, he is he is the intellectual, whatever, mm. of the death squads. Mm. Everything points to him. And ironically, he died here at the cancer at Anderson. You had mentioned that. And he is the one that Bob White refused to give a visa, mm. and then Reagan fired White mm. as our ambassador. Mm. Because he was notorious, he was also a founder of the Arena Party. Oh, okay. Which was in office in the president's thing until two times ago, and then the FMLN have had two last presidents have been FMLN. Mm. But I can't remember the details. But one one of my trips, I really tried to learn something about the structure of the Constitution and that kind of thing. It is so convoluted. Mm. That for all practical purposes, you can't do anything. Well, my understanding with the assassins was that, um, and I'm rem- I, this was I think we were in Jose's jeep when he was telling us this that one of the assassins because there was a driver and then there was mm-hmm. the man who actually fired from the mm-hmm. car I think correct into the chapel where he was giving mass he's at the altar when he's yeah. shot mm-hmm. um, and that one of the assassins daughters is actually involved in Romero Foundation well, see, no, activities. It's the Obasan sister. That's who I'm thinking yeah, of. It's the Obasan sister. No, the Obasan was nowhere around. But the interesting thing, you know, Jose was telling us was the was the driver and the assassin and the assassin was let out of the car. That's right. While the driver made a U-turn, U-turn to be able to pick him up. That's right. To pick him up. Yeah. But I have read that his fate was sealed when he told the soldiers not to kill their brothers. Mm. And that was considered treason. He had some powerful messages. Is there anything, Sissy, you think that's really important for us to understand about Romero or El Salvador? Well, what I think we need to do, and I'm anxious and I don't know where I'm going to look for it, is to try to get up to date on it. Mm. Uh, we... When Obama was there within the last two years, I've forgotten when, he signed some kind of agreement that some of our soldiers can go back. I always ostensibly for drugs. You mm-hmm. know. I don't know. I need to find out. If I'm interested. 50 in more that. advisors? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> so we need, so we need to be educated about what's actually going on. To be up to date on. right mm. now. And if they're getting any help in the field of sustainable development, one of the big things that's happening, and it's by done, being done by multinationals, is mining mm. the extractive things. Mm-hmm. And there, a couple of years ago, I was involved or meeting some of the, the protesters over, the, there's a Canadian company of uh, mining, yeah. and they're mining for gold, and the Doing it in Salvador would destroy the one water source, and the the governor and the president was able to stop it. And then they have brought a lawsuit, and I don't know where that 
is right now. So the Canadian company is suing the government of El Salvador mm -hmm. in international trade court, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's against right. free trade, I think is what they're saying. Yeah. yeah, that's a so that's a good case. So that whole th equation, and we don't hear anything sure, about it. Yeah. And two of the protesters, and this was at least five or six years ago, because the Institute of Policy Studies gave some of these workers an award, the Latelier Award. And uh, two of the protesters had been killed. Oh, wow. So the up-to-date stuff, I don't know. I can remember, and we don't hear anything about this, but that McDonald's owned a lot of land down there oh, raising really? beef. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. <laughs> I know. So, you know, it's not... You have to find a niche where you can get the information because sure. I remember someone was killed down there under sort of horrendous circumstances. And I said to the reporter, are you going to report this? He said, only if it's someone from the States. Mm. So what? So after people get information, is there something, I mean, you're a, a, you've been a human rights activist for decades well, and decades. Well, sometimes, occasionally, um, and often, occasionally... Um, congressman will take it on and try to help. So people could write their congressman and or congresswoman. For example, the person is probably out in front on this now because it sort of died down, mm. is, a, is a congressman. And I knew him when he was an administrative assistant to Joe Mopley, who was a congressman from, from Boston. Mm. And he was right up in front on when the Jesuits were assassinated, mm -hmm. all four, and the housekeeper, and so mm -hmm. forth. And Jim McGovern was his assistant, staff assistant. And McGovern is now in Congress. In Mass representing Massachusetts yeah, as well? and has been. And um, I've forgotten what it was, but it was someone I said, be sure... And he also circulated a letter about Honduras. Mm. Interesting. So he's, you know, he's in the loop. Yeah. So. So is there so, so people could get in, so they could write to McGovern and put pressure yeah, on him. Is there I, anything else you would recommend people well, doing? And just to see what's what's going on. The other thing is something like to be in touch with Joe Eldridge, mm -hmm. who knows the Honduran thing like the back of his hand. Mm -hmm. and that's where I met him. He was there like for 12 years, oh, I wow. think, in Honduras. Mm. And then there's a wonderful organization called the Washington Office on Latin America. Mm. And there's some, there, that, is a, that is a wonderful group that has worked long and hard. They did a lot of work in Chile. Mm. And I once asked Tom Harkin, how did he happen to be so involved with Chile, you know, from Iowa? How mm -hmm. does this happen? Yeah. And he told me as a young congressman that he went down to Chile under the auspices. It's the, the Washington office on Latin America is mm. called WALA. Okay. And he went down there and learned a lot. When During the Pinochet dictatorship? Yeah. Mm. So... And there are people, if you can just, sometimes they go very fast, but make contacts. And, and for example, the nuns and the church people generally in Fort Worth uh, had 
a great influence on Jim Wright, who was the speaker. Mm. And it, out of it culminated in, in a peace, peace treaty down there. Wow, in 92. Mm-hmm. That was the peace treaty in 92? That was part of it, okay. yeah. And um, so it, you know, and I didn't, I didn't know who was, and then I looked, I made some calls or other, and found that Jim McGovern is the one that circulated the letter Letter. about the coup. Mm. So, oh, so he was on top of that. Yeah. Is there anything you want people to know about our upcoming Romero Award or the awardees or anything you have to say about that? Well, I just hope that um, people will come. Absolutely. That's the main thing. It's Mm. an opportunity to find out about uh, what's actually going on. Yeah, I'll say that, um, so we give this biennial Human Rights Award. Um, It's really uh, the gemstone in the chapel's human rights work, um, which is, Sissy has definitely been the Mm -hmm. flame keeper on. Um, And we, the point of the award is to honor people who's put their own lives in peril to support others' human rights, much like um, Archbishop Romero did. And the award comes with a financial prize as well as getting to meet with um, nonprofit organizations and officials in the states and that with the hope that that will give them some protection. And we've, we partner with the Global Fund for Human Rights in identifying the awardees for the past. This will be our fourth award partnering with them. Um, and the last three awardees, we've gotten really powerful testimonials about how it, um, the money obviously is helpful, but in addition, the exposure and the support and just the recognition has been incredibly powerful. And it so, opens doors. Absolutely. So people coming to the award ceremony actually witness and get to participate in that support. Yeah, so that people will come. November 12th. Well, Sissy, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your your busy day and for encouraging us to to go with you to El Salvador. It was an incredible yes. trip for me and for the and chapel. And I hope we can have some hands-on experience as we talked about Absolutely. earlier because I think that's a, a vital part Absolutely. of efforts. Maybe we'll go down when he becomes a saint. <laughs> All right. Thank you, and thank you for listening to the our first Rothko Chapel podcast. <laughs>